Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Caffrey J., who is the founder and executive director of Hip Hop for Change and a native San Franciscan like myself. Not many of us anymore. You know, we're like a dying breed of unicorns. Yes. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the platform, sister. Oh, Calfrey, it's such a pleasure. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your organization. You're doing such important work out in the Bay. Yeah, I'm a local Bay Area MC, and more and more nowadays, I've kind of stopped putting the MC first, and I put organizer first. I think what I like to introduce myself is as a hip-hop community organizer, right? And my job is really just building platforms of self-determination for the local hip-hop community. Because we're real people. We exist. <laughs> this is not some fake depiction in Hollywood. But yeah, I grew up in Hunters Point, San Francisco. That spot that's not on the tourist map. It took a long time to find myself. And I got into activism in 2001 when I got my butt kicked by uh, police during the Iraq war protest. And I've been rapping about politics and political stuff ever since. I mean, I got my butt kicked by police at gunpoint for other reasons, just as a 16, 17-year-old Black man in the city. But... When I got my butt kicked for protesting and saw all these people getting pushed off the sidewalk and beat down and people getting pushed out of wheelchairs, yeah, it kind of woke up something in me. And I think that's the day my rap career died, when I stopped rhyming about stuff that didn't really matter, fake stuff that I didn't have. And I started really getting to this really empowering narrative. I've been doing that for a while, and the hip-hop community in San Francisco is really small. It's tight-knit. And most of those people, they're not balling, you know what I'm saying? Actually, none of them are that I know of. They're not objectifying women as much in their artistry. They're not basing materialism as the center of their self-worth. Most of the people that are in that community, artists, educators, they're working like literacy, after-school programs, things like that. And so I've been in this scene kind of trying to figure out how to speak truth to power in hip hop. And the whole time I've also been building up my career as an activist. I was the first black director for Greenpeace for their fundraising arm, for example, ran their San Francisco office for about three and a half years and learned grassroots organizing and this really cool ability to stand out on any street corner in the world and get funds. Okay, we're going to dig into that, but just interesting fun fact for you. While you were out protesting the Iraq war in San Francisco, I was there at the same time, and I wrote a piece for the San Francisco Bay Guardian, because I was interning at the time, and it was The Anarchist's Guide to Activism. Ah, word, word. And so we were kind of doing the same thing at the same time, though. So we first got connected because we started talking about fundraising and you were talking about your experience with Greenpeace. So I want to talk about that because I don't know much about that kind of fundraising. And to be totally honest with you, I try to avoid people on the street when they <laughs> approach me. They're like, do you care about whales? I'm like, I do, but I also like don't really want to talk to random strangers on the street. So tell me a little bit about that kind of fundraising because I don't know anything about it. Well, I'll say first, if you stop with me wearing this shirt talking about hip-hop for change, you are exactly the person that we look for. So it's kind of different. But yeah, Greenpeace and grassroots fundraising, it is such an interesting industry, just the canvassing industry in whole. Like you see people out there talking about saving the whales, save the children, save this, save that. 
it's a multi-billion dollar industry and it just works. At Greenpeace, I got there on my first day. I interviewed, you hear the story about how Greenpeace started. These cool activists who went to stop a, a nuclear blast and they failed, but everybody loved them so much they had to create this resistance organization and now it's grown around the world. You get this great story. And you know, people started grassroots fundraising because they want to be activists. Sometimes it's because they have no money to, you know what I'm saying? It's a difficult job or whatnot. But yeah, it's a really tight group of people. Generally speaking, these offices are full of amazing go-getters, which is pretty addictive kind of environment. And you're also standing out there on your pulpit. So for people who want to speak truth to power, canvassing can be a really beautiful experience. I know a lot of people look at canvassers or they call them charity muggers <laughs> sometimes, chuggers. And they look at folks with disdain, but I think it's a really great model on getting support quickly and amassing just a community of people that could back you up. I mean, if I sit in a room with somebody and talk to them about white supremacy, for example, I probably have a better chance than if I'm like trying to send out an email blast. Those 30 or 40 people I can talk to in a day, they're bought on board with the mission. And that's yeah. pretty much the root of grassroots fundraising and organizing. It costs a lot to get a body out there to talk to individuals one-on-one, -on -one, but it is really, really effective. Okay, so I want to break this all down because on the one hand, I really like that it's a very proactive approach to building a donor base because I feel like a lot of nonprofits practice what I call like the Venus flytrap approach where they're just like waiting for flies to like land on them and they trap as opposed to like yeah. being active out there on the streets. Talk to me about the economics because as you say, it is expensive to have a person out there. What's the conversion look like? How do the economics work? I would say it's wildly profitable. There's like two ways though that people do it. You got in-house canvassing and you got on contract canvassers, like a face-to-face -face fundraising or the fund, Grassroots Incorporated. These are all organizations that are built, they're for-profit and they train their people and then they get contracts with different nonprofits who are trying to get their message out. Yeah, that stuff is profitable, mostly because people don't get paid much. <laughs> People generally in the sector don't get treated very well. They don't invest very much in training. And when you've got people on contract, you can set up those contracts for what you need to make so your return on investment is good. In San Francisco, there's only three organizations where the canvassers are actually in-house canvassers. So we have Greenpeace. They have their own canvas team. So they're not doing that on contract. Hip Hop for Change. And there's another group called Planting Justice. So we do all our own in-house canvassing. And I'll say your return on investment depends on how much you care about your canvas, really, because you can pay minimum wage and people need jobs. And low skill work is, there's a lot of turnover with these things. So most canvas companies, they're really investing as little as they possibly can in the training, just seeing who sticks. So for example, at Greenpeace, I was taught as the director to bring and I think Greenpeace does treat their workers better than a lot of the for-profit companies that have had class action lawsuits against them for wage theft and all kinds of stuff. But as a director, my job was to get eight bodies into our orientation every week. And the expectation is that only two of those people will stay on and actually work. So we're wasting a lot of people's time. And there's a moral question there, but that's the thing. And people need work. And so you can always, if you have a big old purse, put your ad out there and people will show up. So it works. You pay people, I think when I started at Greenpeace, 
I was probably making $13 an hour. And the job is to get on monthly donors, monthly sustainers. So you only have a couple of people to get each day. It works out. It's a great return on investment, especially when you get that monthly support and then get people on the Venus flytrap, so to speak, and you got them. And then you can keep that going. So yeah, it works out. I think for hip hop or change, it's we're a little less profitable because we actually invest in our people a lot more because our people are the mission. It's not really cool to have a population of black and brown employees and you're trying to talk liberation and then you're kind of using them. So that's not really how it works. But yeah, people make so much money doing grassroots activism. All right. So we're going to talk about Hip Hop for Change's model in one second, because I think that's super interesting. But I think one of the hardest things in the world in fundraising is getting over rejection, right? People take it so personally. And when you're on the streets canvassing, you experience rejection a lot, I would imagine. Like you get probably more rejections than you do yeses. So I'm just wondering, how did you get past the rejection? Because it doesn't feel great. I mean, you have to talk to people like me who actively avoid you on the street. Well, if you talk to me on the streets, you got about a 70 to 80% chance of giving me money. All right, talk about that. How did you get those odds up? Because I feel like I just maybe met some bad canvassers who I'm like, you're an interruption of my day. Maybe I just didn't meet the right canvasser. I don't think I've always been a good canvasser. I wasn't like the 80th percentile success rate canvasser when I first started, but I've been canvassing and fundraising for 10 years, right? It's a certain mentality you got to get into because number one, we always talk about laws of average, right? The more people I talk to, the more people will donate. That's just math. If I stand on a street corner and I say, hey, do you have a dollar? I'm gonna get dollars. It's like no one will ever think they won't get a few dollars at the end of the day. But if I smile and go, hey, you got a few dollars, right? I'll get more dollars. It's just the way it works. If I have good eye contact, I'll get more dollars. If being a black man is a whole bunch of other hurdles I have to take. It's so hard to get a credit card. And at Greenpeace, when I first started, we'd actually take somebody's credit card and then put it under a piece of paper and rub it with a crayon and then walk away with your numbers. And yeah, so I got really good at those objections. But that's it. Every day you're trying to stop about five to 2,500 people. And yeah, depending on your street, you have high traffic areas where it feels like you're in downtown New York. I've canvassed in New York. And you're just like, hey, talk to me, talk to me. Hey, you, come here. Hey, it's like quick, real quick, uh, small, short sentences. And then you got places where there's really slow traffic. You get a person every couple minutes where you have a lot more time to be like, hey, how's it going? So we're taking all these into account. And out of those 500 to 2,500 people you approach, you're going to stop about 30 to 40 people each day, right? And that's all you're looking for, 30 to 40 conversations. And you can make a gold mine out of that. Yeah, I'm loving this idea of conversion because I feel like where a lot of folks stumble in the fundraising world is that they just literally are not talking to enough people. What have you learned about having a compelling message such that it opens a conversation? Because I think a lot of people are reluctant to talk to strangers. I mean, you know, Malcolm Gladwell just wrote a whole book about how we're reluctant to talk to strangers. I think the most important thing that I've learned in my career is you have to canvas for imagined person that supports your goal. You're not canvassing for people who disagree with you, right? You're not canvassing for people who are kind of wishy-washy. Like the lines that you use to stop people should be a line designed for somebody who is on your team already. They just didn't know it yet. You have to be unapologetic. The more unapologetic you are, the more success you'll have. You have to value your own movement outwardly and openly. You have to be a shining beacon of belief. And people can see right through that if you, if you don't believe in your stuff. 
But if you do believe in it, you know, people don't buy nonprofits. They buy canvases, they buy grassroots workers, and they say, wow, this person is cool, and they believe in what they're talking about. And so I believe them too, you know what I'm saying? I believe in what they're saying as well. So yeah, especially working with issues like race. Even when I was working with Greenpeace, I would always frame things in a racial conversation and talk about deforestation in terms of brown bodies and things like that. So my stop lines, and that's what we call them, stop lines, the line you use to stop, hey, come talk to me about whales, right? Mine are designed to like smack people across the face with the issue, just, hey, we're going to talk about some real ish right now straight up and i think the more unapologetic you are the better chance you have and that kind of seems counterintuitive at first when people first start fundraising they just kind of want to be soft hey excuse me do you have a moment to that doesn't work yeah i think maybe that was the issue because i was approached by people like hey do you have a second like no i'm a new yorker i don't have a second i don't care if you have a second you know what i'm saying i don't care like people are like oh i gotta go work i'm like get a new job come talk to me about white supremacy ending i don't have time for that right and i'm making jokes about it as well so that's it i gotta go pick up my kid i was like bring your kid back and let's teach him about black lives matter right now that's that's the way i talk to people on the street i speak to people like they're my best friend already like we've known each other for ages you know what i'm saying but yeah, just standing out there, valuing your movement is what's going to bring you the most success. And then secondarily, knowing your stuff. Yeah. So. It's so funny because as you're talking about it, it's not different than other forms of fundraising, right? Like if you're doing high net worth, major donor fundraising, it's the same thing. You believe in the mission and you're finding people who believe with you. So I want to talk a little bit now about Hip Hop for Change, because you basically built this whole organization on the foundation of this grassroots canvassing fundraising. So talk to me about how it is that you bring money in for Hip Hop for Change. The reason why I started Hip Hop for Change is because, number one, we got three corporations owning 90% of the depiction of hip hop, which is my culture, right? It's not just like some musical form. It's like my culture is hip hop. There's a lot more elements than just rap to it. But it's depicted as violent, criminalizing black and brown youth, and 70% of the consumer base is suburban white men between 18 and 24. So they're buying only a certain type of hip hop which means that my community, the real community of hip hop is so underfunded. We have no efficacy to really build anything. So when I'm rocking at shows, there's no pay. There's no checks for anybody. There's three companies that own all the hip hop shows and they all suck. They don't care and support anybody. And there's one brown company that does. And I got a chance to open up for Rock Kim, who's like the godfather MC, but this company wouldn't even pay me. They wouldn't even pay me to open up. Because they said, we don't know you or whatnot. And of course, I rocked the show since Rakim is the God MC. But I was pissed that night that literally even the Brown Party promotion company treated me like crap. So I just had this idea. I got this huge base of this huge understanding of how to build a grassroots movement that's funded. And I got this community who can't afford to buy flyers for these amazing shows that pass around awesome, important cultural narratives. So that was my epiphany. At the time, I was out on Hay Street selling my own CDs. For, you know, I make about 40 to 100 bucks an hour selling my own CD on Hay Street. And I don't rap for people either. I'm not performative on the sidewalk. I'm like, buy my stuff. But yeah, I just had this idea if I can train 15 to 20 people, like I did Greenpeace, to move a mixtape CD of local hip hop artists. We could promote them and we could build that economic base to throw fat hip hop shows. And that was the start of hip hop for change. So since then we've employed a little under a thousand people with a grassroots job. We pay 16 to 19 an hour plus bonus access to healthcare. 
And initially it was just to throw shows and events that are funded and with a social justice theme going with that. People kept asking me while I was out there on the streets, do you teach kids? Do you teach kids? Can you teach my babies? Please take my kid. And so I developed a curriculum that's modular that teaches the elements of hip hop, uh, the culture, the history, and then pays local artists to get in schools. We've taught 22,000 kids K through 12 uh, with that. And half our classes have been free since we don't turn down broke babies in Title I schools. And we can afford that because of our grassroots fundraising. Yeah, so that's pretty much hip hop for change now. We generally sit with about 30 grassroots fundraisers at any given time. And they go out six days a week fundraising and having about 40,000 conversations a year, a little under 40,000 conversations a year. And mind you, this is our uniform. And mind you, we stand mostly in affluent white neighborhoods. So you'll see us at your suburban Trader Joe's or Whole Foods standing out there getting the cops called on us by Karen. We have permits, so we persist. <laughs> Karen's care a lot about permits. We've learned Yo, permit patties out there. I know. cannot imagine how often getting yelled at by 50, 60 year old white people is a part of our job. How often we get the police called on us. Getting touched inappropriately by white women is something that shocked me at first, but they tend to just, oh, and want to touch my chest and pull my hair and all kinds. And the racist jokes. There's about seven of them, and everybody who says them thinks they're original, but you know, the racist jokes we hear all the time, you talked about rejection, right? Mm -hmm. and, and how we can deal with that. Really, it's about goals, right? Is my goal to get everybody to agree with me? No. Do I care if person agrees with me? I don't. Did Megger Evers care if there were racist people on his voter registration tours? That didn't stop him. I have a larger purpose. And I know that there's going to be a lot of people who don't want to get on this beautiful platform. That's their loss. They messed up. They missed out on me. But that's not my focus. My focus is those 30 people I'm going to talk to. And out of those 30 people, maybe 15 of them, there's 15 of the coolest people that I meet every single day. And half of them drop hundreds of dollars and get on monthly support and want to call us back. And I'll see some of them fist pumping at the front of our next hip hop show. So... Now we got this 70-year-old white lady who's all about hip-hop for change at the front of a hip-hop show, fist pumping in the air. Like, that's hip-hop to me, and that's what I'm there for. I'm out there for two things. A lot of money, right? And I'm out there to get people in my community to be a part of my community. And I don't care what you're saying, you're not going to get in between me and my back, right? You're not going to get in between me and all this money I got to raise for my community. So. Some people say some racist things. I hear that all the time. And people say the same objections all the time and the same everything all the time. So I get day after day to experience dealing with these different objections. So I don't call them rejections. They're objections, right? And I could curb that objection. Hey, somebody says, I don't have time. I said, you've got to make two minutes brown babies. Life's not going to give you time to stop white supremacy. I need you to make two minutes. Ready? Let's go. Right? And people are like, oh, snap. Right. And then they say another objection. And I've got I've heard that one a million billion times. So I refined this response to it. And people, they say all these things where they think they're going to get away from me. But I just hit them with a moral conundrum and they go, oh, snap. And <laughs> I get a lot of money. You know, if I can go yeah. out on a show every day, pulling over a thousand dollars of support. 
So part of what you're saying is so interesting to me because it's kind of one of the fundamentals of fundraising, which you just have to find your people. And the process is about of the 7 billion people in the world, surely there's some group of people that care enough about what you care about can sustain your organization. So Kyle your business model really depends on being on the street and talking to people. How has COVID affected this? Because you are not out on the street now. We are currently getting back on the street. We just started our grassroots canvas and our interviews this week. But yeah, in March, everything's changed. We had to furlough our entire grassroots staff. And fortunately, they were eligible for unemployment. But they're like a family to us. And it was very emotional, very tense, and a lot of tears and whatnot. Also, our education contracts shut down. We lost probably like $30,000 in shows and events we were doing with the Dion Museum and the Asian Art Museum. So we've had to pivot. And what that's looked like is on an online curriculum, especially to keep the education going, but mostly to help out our artist educators who weren't eligible for unemployment most of the time and didn't have any resources. Imagine a DJ who's been working under the table and now they don't have any employment for the next year or so. That's what we're working for. And also just trying to branch out and reach out and network to do whatever we can. We've been working on a couple Zoom shows, but we also try to do phone canvassing. And that was a whole racket. We're still trying to figure that out. But yeah, it's something that we need to get back out there with. We have a monthly donor base that is shrinking slowly over time with attrition. A little less attrition once George Floyd got choked out, which is noticeable. But yeah, we need to get back out there. Monthly donation support is really important. And grassroots activism and people having jobs, like our canvases are calling us saying, hey, we need work, we need work. And COVID-19 be damned, people do need paychecks and they need to keep going. So I'm just an advocate for grassroots fundraising. It's all nonprofits need is financial support and awareness of their work. That's mm -hmm. the two things all nonprofits need. And I think grassroots fundraising allowed me as uh, just a singular person with an idea to get out there on the streets and raise 400 to $1,000 every day for my movement so I can have enough money to buy my website, then to go incorporate, then to go pay a lawyer. I didn't have to deal with foundations to see if I was good enough or kind of water down my ideas a little bit because I wanted to make sure I didn't scare the people at the foundation, which happens a lot of the time with foundation and when you're only trying to get foundational support. I think grassroots activism allows you not to need to code switch, especially as a person of color. So I can stand out there with, this is our shirt, right? And I'm not, don't have to worry about spooking anybody at the Ford Foundation or whatnot. So I've been able to set this history now. I don't know. I feel like Darren Walker is hard. It's a little hard to spook, but point taken. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. he is. I, I probably mentioned that because we were just trying to reach out to them. But I did have to set a precedent of work. Every single time we write a grant, we've had to explain why hip-hop is relevant, important, and not right. what people see. And less and less we have to do that since we have such a great history of, of great work that speaks for itself. But grassroots fundraising is the way to go. It's the way to build up networks. And I think everybody should try it. Just try it. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about your financials. What is your current operating budget? And of that budget, what are your revenue streams so that we can understand sort of how it all works together? We never really know what our yearly budget's going to be. Last year, we were about 650 grand. It was one of our best years. So we're operating on that. Our grassroots program is around a $450,000 program. It's the lion's share of what Hip Hop for Change does. 
And that's since we invest so much in our grassroots officers. They're the bulk of our work. So we're not paying just a little bit. We're paying as much as we possibly can. We also have a paid day of employee development. On Wednesdays, we actually don't fundraise. And I pay them to learn how to be better employees and learn financial literacy and nonviolent communication and organizing so they can have more efficacy in this sector. But yet, I was looking into some of these numbers yesterday. We had about a little over 18,000 individual supporters last year, 2019. Yeah, we have about a 53% success rate as a grassroots canvas for people that talk to us will donate an average of about $22. And out of those 18,000 donors, and we take cash, we take checks, one-time donations, everything out there. We'll take Venmo, PayPal, all that, your firstborn, your dog. And we also take monthly donors. About 6% of our donors are monthly donors. And they donate about $17 on average, which gives us a nice little base and chunk of change every single month to allow us to do more and invest more in our grassroots workers. And yeah, our retention for our grassroots staff is great. Our average canvasser stays on for about six months a little under six months once they've made staff. So I think the fact that we're a POC organization and we're rooted in issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis keeps people really wanting to be a part of this and wanting to see the mission go. So it's been a little slower going. I think we were looking to break a million dollars this year and also open up our second office in LA since this is a highly replicable model. It's built on being able to open up shops everywhere. I know Greenpeace has 14 offices open and they pull in about 30 million a year just through their grassroots department and monthly donorship. So we're, yeah, I can't wait <laughs> to have $30 million to throw up into the positive hip hop community. But COVID kind of knocked all that down. We're still looking to break about 700 grand this year. Okay. I have a question coming in from Robin, which you might've answered somewhat, but Robin, what's her question? Hi, thank you both uh, so much. My name is Robin Walker-Murphy. I'm executive director of an organization in New York called Groundswell. We're a mural organization and working with youth around uh, social justice issues. Um, So we do more of kind of like end of year kind of campaigning, doing the kind of like mailings and things like that, and also just online campaigns. And I'm curious about what your thoughts about those kind of more like, I guess, traditional uh, modes of fundraising. Do you do any of those or do you feel like everyone should be pivoting to a much more kind of like grassroots canvassing model? So I'm still trying to get better at those types of fundraising models. Although we tried everything. We put our efforts in everything. So when it was Giving Tuesday, we switched to that mode. I don't want my vision to be myopic since my background is grassroots organizing, but it's my skill set. And also thinking about an organization like yours, you probably work with some really motivated people that wouldn't mind standing on a corner speaking truth to power, especially when they can see how much they can pull in. I'm not sure how big your organization is, But if you had four people raising $1,500 for your organization each week, that might give you a little bit of money to do something. And also give the people who are asking, hey, can I volunteer? Can I do something? Are are the people that have been working with you giving them a paycheck? So we do, like we fundraise in every way we can. We do the dinners, do the mailers and whatnot. But I think the most inspirational thing that I've ever seen is a room full of 30 super diverse hungry, inspired activists figuring out how to organize their community financially and how to get people to shows and how to get people to protest. Like, that's the coolest thing in the world. I just think everybody should try it, especially like smaller nonprofit movements who are just trying to get some funding. 
And a lot of the questions around, like, we call ourselves artivists, like, you know, so you're being like a social justice, you know, anti-racist organization. The question also comes up is who don't we take money from? So, you know, I work with a lot of like social justice activists and they're like, do you take money from banks? Or maybe we shouldn't take money from Goldman Sachs. So I'm also just curious about your thoughts. Like, is there a criteria of who money doesn't come from? Or is it kind of like all money is dirty in some way and we're using it for good? I think one of the things that keeps organizations strong is moral convictions that everybody knows and are equivocal and don't get messed with. COVID-19 was the first time Hip Hop for Change took any corporate, like for-profit funds from corporations. We took a $25,000 donation from 2K Games who realized they make a lot of money off blackness with their basketball stuff. But before that, it was our rule to never take for-profit donations. So. You know, I've had meetings with big banks in Frisco and they say, you don't take our money. I'm like, nah, because corporations took everything black people and brown people ever made in this nation's history and then beat us over the head with it while they sold it to their sons and daughters. So we had a really intentional conversation about funding and where we got that from when we started Hip Hop for Change. And we wanted to make sure that our community knew that we weren't bought out by MTV. They weren't going to give us some dollars and then the next thing our movement was watered down a hundred years from now. We were thinking about a hundred years from now when we're dead and gone, how do you put in those morals into your bylaws, for example? I always think it's really important to figure out who you won't take money from and why and let people know that so they know that your morals are strong and you're grounded. Uh, and there's certain people who just, you shouldn't be taking money from. Like if I got an environmental movement, I'm taking money from the Koch Foundation. Like it's not cool. And I think especially if you're running a POC org, something like if you're doing graffiti murals or whatnot, or just murals in general, like people want to see like authentic fighting, even say, hey, we don't take anything from this group of people or this hate. Reaffirming that for people makes them donate more. Actually, I'd love to jump in on that conversation as well, Godfrey, because I think a tough call, I think. And one way that I really, to your point, like you really have to have the conversation and you have to have a frame and you have to be clear about what you will and won't do and why you will or won't do it. And I think that there's a case to be made, not all money, but I think money as medicine. Like when we think about repatriating money to serve communities of color that have been historically exploited, can we take these resources and do good with it? That's the conversation. And that's actually the conversation we after COVID when we were like, oh, snap, we're going down. And then George Floyd got choked out and then everybody started caring about black and brown bodies. So we got a little bit of windfall from that. And we had to have a conversation. Hey, it's important to stay alive so we can have these jobs after COVID. So we kind of bent our rules a little bit, but it is difficult as a small nonprofit. And I literally had arguments with my leadership team for the first five years of Hip Hop for Change. Like, no, we're not going to take corporate money. No, no. Like, knock down, drag, knuckle, whatever the saying is, fights about this moral conundrum. But five years after that, I stopped having those conversations. Once we started getting more foundational support and we were good and our monthly donor base grew, we didn't have those, like, emergency hey, we need to. And now people are extra proud of the fact that we just don't do that. We've been able to say we've done this by just our community. So again, to be able to stand out there in front of somebody and be like, hip hop or change is dope. And then to really know that, like that comes from those moral convictions and not bending on what's right and wrong. Because that's all this work is. The only reason why there's a nonprofit sector out there is because there's right and wrong. And for-profit and public sectors cannot 
take care of that. So we have an obligation as organizations, especially when you're a grassroots organization, to make sure this movement is worth their time. One thing that we always deal with is theft, for example. You know, we take cash. So people can put a 20 in their pocket all they want to. Like, I had to make peace with that starting out. So how do I defend against people doing that? Well, the only way I do that is making a badass organization that's so cool that people feel like they don't want to take from our org. And people know that when we lose money, there's babies out there that are not going to learn their history and learn that they come from an unbroken chain of excellence in, in cultural expression. And they're not new and they don't need to be what they see. Like our staff know that we need every dollar for that mission. So that's what you do. You just have to have an organization and a movement that's worth your people's time. And I think revenue streams is a large part of whether or not your org is worth it. That's beautiful. Thanks, Caffrey. I've got a question coming in. Quote, I'm intrigued by the idea of framing issues around racial justice, but can fundraisers take this too far, art museums, higher ed, et cetera, and thus drain money from causes that can truly make a difference? I would always say take this too far for whom? It depends. I've had talks where I don't wear my in white supremacy shirt and I wear the Hip Hop for Change logo shirt, right? I know where I'm at, right? When I go to teach in schools, right? I don't generally wear my in white supremacy shirt. I'll wear my Hip Hop for Change shirt. And I think that's because what my goal is is to be able to get back in there and teach those kids again. So I know that there's powers that be in school situations, and I know that some of them might be offended by this, and they might be able to pull the rug out from under us and say, you no longer get to teach my kids. And so I think it depends on what you need. I think that you can frame a lot of things in America around racial justice, because this country, like race, is intersected in almost everything we're doing when it comes to finances, or who has it and who doesn't. And I think if your goal is making money, then you're gonna to have to tailor your conversation or your presentation to get money from that person, right? So maybe for this particular conversation, if your goal is purely getting money, you can take it too far to where it will turn off your potential donor, right? If your goal is to stop white supremacy, then you can never trumpet that loud enough, right? If your goal is not like, if that's your secondary goal, getting money, and your primary goal is to stop white supremacy, then you should never curtail your message. If your primary goal is to stop rape culture, massage, you got to stand up and be that shining beacon. And I think that's the conundrum we face as social justice warriors. It's like, when do I stop screaming truth to power as loud as I can? When do I kind of bring that down a little bit so I can get this bag of money so I can take that and teach kids or do whatever I need to? That's the moral conundrum you face. And I think you have to figure that out yourself. I have been on the streets and like thrown $100 bills back at people. Like, I don't want your money, you racist person who just said something after donating to me that was highly offensive. Take it. I don't even want you to be a part of my movement. And I also think that that's why we have a high retention rate of hip hop for change because everybody who works with me knows that we do not bend over and bow down for nobody. So yeah, you got to figure out your own space because you're in your own environment you got your own movement but do you want to get money as your primary goal do you want to build a strong team that's going to get more people to be inspired over time you got to figure that one out for yourself i know that for me as a black activist there's no bag that's worth me not facing up to white supremacy when i see it so you know if i'm talking to a foundation and they say something racist i'll call them out i'll call them out even if they won't give me the 20k or 30k that i need that's just how we are yeah, just to add to that, and if I'm understanding the question correctly, I think there has to be a fundamental mind shift around our 
relationship to abundance and to scarcity, because the reality is there is more than enough money to support all of the causes, whether it's fine arts, whether it's higher ed, whether it's grassroots, hip hop organizing, like there's no shortage of money in the world. It's about finding the networks and how to unlock it. So, and I think for I mean, me, that was been the shift, which is like, let's just work from the assumption that there's more than enough for everyone and then go from there. Yeah, we don't have anything like scarcity in this country. It's just mismanagement of resources. You can make millions off selling a pet rock. Like you can sell anything. You just need a marketing plan. So I think working off the assumption that there's a community out there for you is important. And you'll make more money off your community that supports you if you are authentic, then you'll make trying to water down your mission so you can get a larger like population of people maybe to care. You'll also create a stronger organization of people that will work way harder when they know that you're morally solid. Yeah. One of the things that you're saying is something that I really believe deeply too, which is you have to put the work at the center of the relationship, not the money. It's not about the money. It's about building a movement and it's about the courage of your convictions. That's it. It's like organizational longevity is built on community, you know, not that donation today. So that was hard. I mean, there was a lot of times when I first started Hip Hop for Change where there was corporations trying to give us money and we really needed that money. And then I got some of my leadership yelling at me like, Copy, what are you doing? And I'm like, no, we're not going to do it. But eight years later, it feels really good to say that we didn't. And that might be the reason why we have this is our uniform, because we didn't need to code switch. Can they get a piece of the uniform? Yeah, you can go to hiphopforchange.org. We got a new NY Supremacy shirt up there. We got hoodies, we got beanies, visors, all kind of stuff. So please support. Uh, right now, actually, we are building a studio that's going to be free for kids under 24. A lot of kids need to get stuff off their chest. And a lot of the studios, the costs are prohibitive to get into. And a lot of the nonprofit spaces require a lot of personal development work before you're allowed to get that stuff off your chest, which I think is boring. Yeah, so we're building a studio. We still need funds for it. So if you go get yourself some Hip Hop for Change swag, it will support us building a studio where kids can get stuff off their chest and find their real voice. Okay, I think we have time for one last question. And this one is coming in about board development. So talk to us a little bit about how you've been thinking about your board, how you train your board, and is your board actively engaged in fundraising, which is a more traditional model of fundraising? Yeah, we don't have a traditional board, right? Our board is three homies of mine, which is really unique, right? It's three people that are not rich. It's three people that I know love hip hop and are in the hip hop scene and come to the ciphers and whatnot. And three people that really believe in me. I don't require much from my board. I am right now working on board development. That's like my next thing because I want to bring some more energy in here because boards can be very, very powerful. But no, I think for the most part, I have been really focused on just the grassroots aspect of things. So I don't have uh, board members that have been on several boards before, or millionaires are connected with anybody. That's not what they're there for. And I actually don't really think I ever really want people like that on my board. I'm going to push such- back on you a little bit because millionaires <laughs> love hip hop too. That's true, but if I can find one that actually goes to the hip hop ciphers every week and participates in the culture, that'd be the thing. And I think that's my biggest thing is I don't want anybody who just is on my board because of their business relationships or their their business acumen. I want people on our board because they're a part of the hip hop scene. 
And for right now, I haven't been able to speak to Puff Daddy. And I haven't talked to Dr. Trey. <laughs> I haven't even been able to reach Lupe Fiasco. So for right now, I think what has been the most comfortable for me is having people who really care about the culture and who know about the culture and are participants in that culture. Not this big, flashy world that we see on television. I don't want that influence at Hip Hop and Change, right? It, it needs to be a community feel. Like we might even write in our bylaws that our board have a financial cap of how much they can make before they can't be on the board. Uh, as a fundraiser, I'm going to say no to that. There should okay. never be a cap on how much they can raise. <laughs> No, I don't know. I just feel like I'm still trying to figure out the DNA of hip hop and change. So 100 years from now, when I'm dead and gone, it still has the community vibe and it's not taken away and taken over, right? And so how do you do that? And the way that we've been able to do that so far is by making sure that we have really cool homies who are, are part of our board and our decision-making body. Also having really diverse leadership. Our leadership is more than half women and brown women at that creates for a great work environment. But no. I am trying to diversify our board, but there will still be people that are like me, not rich, people that participate in the culture and community and see the real issues on the ground. I really appreciate your clear-eyed vision around what the culture is and what you are not willing to compromise. And I think that really makes for longevity. It's about understanding the core principle of what you are always, no matter how much money you may have or don't have. Thank you so much for your time and for all you're doing for the barrier for the hip hop for the babies thank you right on thank you so much y'all peace thanks all